welcome to the New Wave Entrepreneur, where we dive headfirst into Web 3.0, personal sovereignty, spirituality, and psychology. These conversations are unfiltered access to brilliant minds and actionable advice that will prepare you for the rapidly changing world. So jump in. The water is warm and the tide is rising. Hey there, thank you for tuning in to another episode of The New Wave Entrepreneur. I'm so excited today to introduce you to my friend, Eric Jacobs. Eric is the CIO, which is the Chief Innovation Officer over at VaynerMedia. VaynerMedia, uh, headed by the prolific, eccentric Gary Vaynerchuk, is one of the predominant media agencies in the world, and they specialize in uh, creating world-class content, of which Gary has been you know, mastering for years now. And it's Eric's job to take their roots of VaynerMedia and to find new ways to innovate with their skill sets and their uh, diverse um, assets across new frontiers like Web3, like NFTs, like the blockchain space, like virtual reality. And Eric has been uh, through the the valley of Silicon Valley. He's been, uh, you know, through corporate. He's been, uh, he's seen the startup world. He's seen venture capital. Um, he's very well versed in not only where we are, but where we're going. And so I think you're going to enjoy this conversation with him. And that's it. Plug in. Uh, I will also let you guys know that the next workshop, Money Moves, is happening. Uh, we're doing basically like, like early, early bird right now. We're doing the pre-sale for these tickets starting January 1st. So Money Moves is my newest workshop. It's all about uh, understanding cash flow, under, understanding financial uh, planning and financial fundamentals for entrepreneurs and uh, professionals, understanding investment strategy, understanding tax saving strategies. So all about getting your money and your financial house in order for entrepreneurs and professionals. Uh, this is going on sale um uh, in January, starting January 1st. And if you want to get on the pre-order list for this, make sure that you are on my subscribe to my Substack, and you're going to get early news on that. And, uh, if you are a premium member, you're going to get a nice little discount as well. So that's the latest update. Dig into this episode with Eric Jacobs. Catch you on the break. Friends, welcome back to another incredible episode of The New Wave Entrepreneur. As you know, we're bridging this gap between technology and culture. Uh, if you're listening to this show, you understand now that the changes that are happening in the world are not things that we're necessarily going to be able to opt into. The evolution of the internet, the evolution of people, you could even say the evolution of humanity is something that we're all being taken along the ride for. That's why I use the term wave. Because when you're in the ocean, you don't have the opportunity to opt out of the waves. You have to either learn to surf them or you're crushed by them. And there's a way of 
uh, interacting with the ocean, even though it's a violent force of nature that can allow you to move with it rather than uh, move against it. And we obviously know that in terms of energy conservation, it's great to move with it. I've been thinking for uh, the past year, just talking to close family and friends, you know, how guys are we going to, you know, continue to protect ourselves and evolve? And part of that is coming from a genuine understanding of the technology. Many of us here are straight consumers and there's nothing wrong with consuming. I consume a lot. I'm going to consume tonight. But in order to be more effective consumers or in order to be more effective people in the industry, we have to understand the perspective of the creator. And so this show often talks about the mindset of the creator. And when I say creation, I mean becoming actively involved in what's happening from the perspective of someone who's going to engage with it and get in early on the technology as it's happening. Many of us listening to this grew up in the internet age, web 1.0, and it was very fun. Uh, You know, you might hear this sound in your mind. Do you know there are still 40 million people on dial-up in the US? Well, that's true. And unfortunately, some people will be left behind because they don't want to grow. They don't want to change. But the group of listening people listening to this show are those who have willingly chosen to take their mind to the next level and to take their experience of life to the next level. And on the show today, we have Eric Jacobs. Now, Eric has a very interesting story, um, not just because he works for a company that people might know of, but also because he's in on this movement. He understands that technology is something that can, uh, can serve us if we learn how to adapt to it. So I want to welcome you to the show, Eric. Thanks, Will. Uh, It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Um, Let's see. How do I want to cut into this? Let me think. Where are you located right now? Where do I? Where am I located right now? I'm in Williamsburg, yeah. Brooklyn. Oh, so you're in a, you're you're in a trendy area for the time being. Yeah, <laughs> I actually, just it, uh, that's I'm, one of those areas where people wish they would have invested in 20 years ago. Agree. Uh, and you mentioned riding a wave. I think I'm about ready to get off of the uh, the wave that is is Williamsburg and head someplace else. Too many uh, strollers. Where are you going? Uh, where are you I think going? I'm in downtown Manhattan. Hmm. I see what you're going for. Yeah. Um, have you started watching Succession yet? I have not watched Succession. I actually hadn't Man! heard it until uh, everyone was hype about this new season coming out, but I'm looking to, <sighs> to bend and get into it. It's savage. If you just want to just – it's one of those shows I think that um, – First of all, if you're not watching this show or if you're not watching Succession, you should. I'm not sponsored by them. But um, <laughs> but <laughs> it's one of those shows that really um, – it kind of hammers in the point that that – Money doesn't solve problems, although it creates a fantastic uh, layer of potential experience. It doesn't really solve problems because these people are rife with external struggles, I think, or internal struggles. I think that's actually one thing I want to talk to you about, you know, as in your career in corporate and seeing the mass amounts of money moving into different industries, especially, you know, in the different companies you've worked in. Do you feel that that money is the solution to our, our problems Definitely not, and um, I think it's it's a, a good place to jump in when you when you hear about things like uh, Meta and how they are rebranding and 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 uh, sort of staking their claim to be the metaverse company. Uh, questions immediately arise given their uh, their background and the issues with mm-hmm. privacy and data ownership. And so uh, there's obviously to put it in 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 your terms or terminology, there's this new wave coming that's Web3, that's Metaverse. And uh, Facebook come Meta has laid claim to this, but do they have the permission? Uh, they're they're probably the most uh, well-funded 
entrant uh, player that that wants to uh, to get into this space, but given their history, given uh, the way that consumers feel about them, um, will they have permission? Uh, and so, to your point, like money doesn't necessarily solve everything. No, it's it's interesting too because uh, from my perspective. Mark Zuckerberg used to be an iconoclast. He used to be someone who I respected as uh, someone who was bucking the trend. You know, I show up to board meetings in hoodies. I'm developing something that's innovative. I'm for the people. And now I see him as the complete opposite. What's your take? Uh, my take is that he's a pragmatist and uh, and a businessman. Um, you can do a lot of bad shit at the sake of practicality. No, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, absolutely, it's absolutely true. <laughs> Uh, but if you look at some of the lessons that, that Facebook, then Meta now learned, uh, the value of having a platform, a hardware platform. And so in, in Web2, uh, Google had Android, Apple had iOS. And, you know, when you look at things now like uh, iOS 15 with the, uh, the, the gradual disappearance of cookies, uh, when you don't Cut the own, legs out, when you don't own the platform, uh, what can you do? And so they saw that a long time ago. And, and you, I, I can't remember exactly how many years ago the, the acquisition of Oculus, uh, was, but it was with this in mind that so when, when Web3 became a thing, when the metaverse and AR VR became a thing to own a, a hardware, uh, platform. And so when you ask me what I think of, of Zuckerberg, I, I think he's a, a businessman. I think he's a, a pragmatist and, and it's learned some, some serious lessons from Web1 and, and Web2 before Web3. But is he a reptile? Uh, no comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, you know, I think he's gradually lost his humanity, but that's my personal opinion. Look, I, I do think what they've done with, uh, with Oculus is pretty impressive. I actually have an Oculus, uh, the Quest 2, and it's, it's scary. I was playing it with my nephew over the weekend, and I mean, it's just so realistic. And then you think, wow, we're not even, we're in the baby phases of this. And, um, and not only that, but it, it's so relatively cost effective. It was like 250 bucks. Wow. And it's this whole experience. And I'm looking at my, I was playing the Star Wars game and I'm looking at my gloves and it's, you know, an 8K quality and I'm seeing my fingers flexing and I'm seeing them flex around the lightsaber and move. And, and then the slightest motion I make with my hands, if I can touch my fingers together, they, they make the same shape on the Oculus. And then I'm climbing up ladders and I'm having to physically do it, but then I'm feeling the resistance of the pulse. I have a hard time even understanding where all the pulses are coming from because I, you know, I only have these two little remotes and then there's the surround sound. I mean, it's pretty, um, it's pretty impressive. And they tried to, they tried to get in on, on cell phones. There was like a Facebook phone they tried to get wow. in on for a while. Amazon it wasn't too. the move. Amazon too. Yep. Yeah. Well, Amazon's an interesting case because they have like their Kindle thing, which I guess Kindle's not bad, I guess, but it's not a true hardware platform. But what they have going for them is AWS. Absolutely. Shout out to AWS with the AWS. We're probably on AWS right now on this podcast platform. Amazon Web Services is one of those things that, you know, I think it actually generates more money than their, than their physical, their physical logistics service. I think it's their, their leading business. Yeah, which is interesting because it's the underpinning of the majority of the internet and it goes unseen and unspoken yeah. about. You know, I'm not sure if it's true for a while, but for, for now, but for a while, uh, Netflix was running on AWS and it's like, yeah. it is strange too because they're powering their competitors in that way. What's the, uh, the Little Wayne lyric? Uh, real G's move in silence like lasagna. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was when he was good. That was like Little Wayne 2000, like 2004 to 2010. Little Wayne was my favorite yeah. Little Wayne. Peak Little um, Wayne. Peak Lil Wayne, that whole series of mixtapes, no ceilings, dedication, one, two, three. It was a great, 
But it's interesting, and, and when you think about um, when you think about just the the tech wars, they almost really uh, mirror the wars of countries. As you think about in terms of uh, imports and exports, the countries need. You know, China and America need each other for key and vital imports and exports. And Amazon and Facebook, Amazon and Google, Facebook and Apple all need each other for different imports and exports, but they're also at war. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a, it's a value chain kind of play. And, and, uh, as I alluded to earlier, uh, there's a lot of value in owning the, uh, the, the hardware platform, which is why you see folks like Facebook and Amazon trying to, uh, to get into that, to that space, but they absolutely need each other. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out as it, uh, as it pertains to, to Web3, particularly because the whole tenet of Web3 is decentralization and, and what does that mean um, when all the companies that became successful in Web1 and Web2 uh, essentially aggregated all that value by being market marketplaces or, or platforms and, and being centralized? Well, yeah, and I don't I don't think that centralization is going away anytime soon. And I think not all centralization should go away. You know, when I talk about sovereignty, I really just mean choice, the, op- the opportunity to make a choice. It, I even think about sometimes like... Um, just like the cable company, you know, it's like Verizon is now coming to your neighborhood. So they'll have commercials who are like, did you know that Verizon offers you this, this and that? I'm like, I don't have a choice. I have to take Verizon. You're the only one in my neighborhood. They're like, now we're offering more convenience. I'm like, the option is no service or Verizon. So it's not really, it's centralized service. They're trying to pass off as an option of value, yeah. but it's like, well, I don't have a choice. Um, okay. So, so let's talk about your unique perspective in this industry based on your trajectory. Um, sure. Can, can you give us some insight on, you know, on where your career started and, and how how it evolved into what you're doing now at Vayner? And we talk about that a little bit, too. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a wild ride. Uh, so I, I went to Stanford as an undergrad and I was uh, then and now a, a music fanatic. And I was really interested in how um, the legacy entertainment companies were going to transition their their business models to, to digital so after I graduated, I went down to LA and worked at Machinima, which was one of uh, YouTube's first premium content partners. Uh, worked in, in film and, and TV uh, at a studio called Media Rights Capital on House of Cards and some other projects. But essentially, what I wanted to do was was help Hollywood make that uh, transition to to digital. And as it turns out, I was I was uh, way too early. And yeah, how'd that go? <laughs> a lot of a lot of the things that you hear about nepotism. Uh, and, and Hollywood are, are, are true. And, um, you know, this was 2009. I might be dating myself, but You're early. Uh, yeah. Spotify was barely a thing. Uh, Netflix was still mainly uh, mailing discs, doing Whoa. Uh, doing no original content. House of Cards was, was their first thing. Um, YouTube was just getting into the premium content space. And so I was just way too early there and got tired of things like, uh, being asked to find my boss's college age son a dorm cleaning service or to walk down the block oh, to start fuck and get- that <laughs> yeah 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 well i mean that's one of those things where sometimes do you do do you do you use your vision to get into things early and hang on or or do, do you do you transition into things that are working so that you can try to bridge back to the technology that you know is going to take place yeah, um, I think I'm like Zuck in that I'm a I'm a pragmatist, uh, and and so after that I, I went back up to the Bay Area and joined uh, a research analyst team at, at Citigroup covering internet stocks, 
and got a great understanding of uh, the fundamentals behind some of the internet companies that emerged, including Facebook. I uh, worked on their their IPO. Um, I really wanted to do earlier stage stuff after that, and so I, I did a stint in venture capital and then joined an early stage uh, cybersecurity startup in in San Francisco. And you know, the, the idea that I, I had then and now is um, real paradigm shifting ideas should be easy to understand. Um, the ways that technology uh, should impact society. If it's a big enough idea, it'll be easy enough to explain to a, a third grader in, in, in perfect, uh, simple English. And so I hope this answers your question. But um, if it's a big, big enough idea, uh, it, it should be easy enough to, to explain to somebody in, in 10, 15 seconds why, why it'll change the world. Well, what, one thing I think, uh, and as worthy of noting, is that sometimes when you are very interested in an industry, and you come into it as a, like you came in as a, as a big music fan, you know, and you want to get in the industry because you love the product. Sometimes if you don't understand the process, you can't innovate on the product. Absolutely. So by you going back to working, um, you know, behind the scenes a bit and then learning venture and then understanding how the money goes into the industry, then that gives you a bigger, a, a broader perspective on how you can actually affect changes. Um, Two things I thought of as you're talking was you're working on cybersecurity in San Fran and they, they have enough cybersecurity. They need real security now. Yeah, San Fran right. is toast. Yeah. Um, I saw a meme that said, uh, San Francisco, you have to get vaccinated to go to the restaurant, but you can shoot up heroin and take a crap outside of it. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, they're not wrong. And I love San Francisco too. And I feel, I, I feel sad. And honestly, I'm in Portland. It's not much better. Yeah. No. Uh, and, and speaking of, uh, of boiling down complicated, uh, concepts down to a uh, takeaway phrase. I think you just did that about the current state of San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's interesting too. Like I heard that there are like a, you know, a hundred CVSs that are closing now because of, let's say it's a shoplifting or something like that. And, and that the, the, the local, the local government is allowing this to happen because they don't have the police force or because of these, you know, these types of strains that are coming on the system. And it's interesting because San Francisco itself in New York to a certain extent, I mean, to a big extent really shows that true American dichotomy of extreme wealth. And extreme poverty and the gap between that and, you know, that you can really have Silicon Valley, which is the, you know, the epicenter of true technological wealth. And you can step outside of one of these buildings and see that people are really struggling. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's honestly why I left uh, San Francisco. I had spent six years there. And uh, when I moved there, it, it was a, a vibrant, diverse city, uh, big mm -hmm. into the arts, super weird, uh, diverse nightlife. And, you know, over the course of three, four years, maybe with the influx of venture capital money and all of the uh, startups moving their headquarters up from uh, the peninsula to the city, it, the, the demographics just changed overnight. And, and all of a sudden, you're living in a world where um, everybody at a restaurant next to you is talking about their, at first it was uh, it was their startup, then next it was their fund. Uh, it seemed like everybody had a, had a fund. Yeah. And, uh, and, and as you point out, um, there, yeah, this, this, humongous swath of people living in, in abject conditions. And, you know, regardless of, of how successful some of the companies uh, were and how much wealth was was getting created in San Francisco, uh, I felt like there was gross city mismanagement in terms of how that manifested itself uh, in, in terms of basic so social services like mental health and, and homelessness and drug addiction and, and all those sorts of things. And so uh, I totally. did doubt. 
Totally. I mean, it, it's also representative of just America's approach to this stuff as a whole. I mean, I, I can tell you that um, even just when I lived in, in Venice, I lived in Venice for eight years, which is like uh, Silicon Beach, essentially. You know, that whole area is just tech, but by the beach, you know, in L.A. And, I, you know, I, I wish that I could say I was lying. But as soon as Snapchat and Google and everyone moved in to Venice, it got worse. It got worse. And you, you'd think that they'd be bringing wealth into the community, but really they brought more poverty. Every year after I saw big tech move into those neighborhoods, there were more people on the street. There was literally, I mean, there were heroin needles on the street. There was human feces on the street. And, and I say, well, you know, correlation isn't causation, but I live here. Yeah. So, you know, and that, and that actually goes ties well to how we talked at the beginning of the program. It's like, does money solve everything? Well, it's really about the distribution, isn't it? No, oh, that's absolutely true. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. And, and you know, we talk about the, the metaverse now as a place where we're going to be able to build um, something new, whether it's just something that's fun as a piece of technology or perhaps even a new, a, a new skin on society, a new layer of society, uh, a new wing of society. Do, do you think that the metaverse is going to cause some of those same uh, gaps in opportunity? Uh, if you look at what's happening early uh, so far, you, you'd say absolutely yes. Um, I, I saw an article yesterday that, that said, uh, for example, that um, women, uh, NFTs uh, that are darker skinned and, and, and women uh, are selling for less value than their, their lighter skinned and, and male, male counterparts. And if you look at the, the folks who are making the most money off of things like crypto and NFT early, it's, it tends to look like the people who are making money off of tech, which are generally white White men, white males, yeah, white men. Which I mean makes sense because if they already have the most money to invest, you, you, you know, I don't, I don't give a shit about the Winklevosses in terms of I, be who you are. You know, yeah. you can't change the fact that you're Tyler Winklevoss and that you rode and did crew and that's your that whatever. I don't care, but we can't have this the new thing be a repeat of the old thing. Otherwise, what's the point? For, but that's me speaking as a, a black person in society. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, you know, I guess everyone else who's already in that position said, I like the way it is. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, um, I think well, a big it, part of the equation is, is exposure. And, um, you know, how do you reach people that uh, did not go to an Ivy League school or don't have a computer science background or an experience in tech and let them know that there's this big opportunity and that they should start to pay attention and, and get engaged with uh, to put it again in your terms, this new wave that's coming. It's difficult. I mean, that's why uh, that's why I really fuck with Nipsey so hard, you know, because he yeah. that's exactly what he was trying to do. He was trying to and he was, you know, through through Vector 90 and through the projects he was doing in L.A., you know, too big to fail. He was bringing tech and, you know, and the he was bringing knowledge to that community so that the pipeline was repaired or at least even installed. You know, people will say, well, you know, I saw an article a couple of years ago of, uh, you know, one of the CEOs of Wells Fargo saying, well, the reason why we don't have more black talent is because, you know, we don't have, uh, you know, we don't have a high number of applicants. But if the pipeline isn't there, if they're not in the schools, if they're not being encouraged, if if you, you know, depending on how far you want to go down this. But if you look at like the um, the uh, the link between the um, like the pipeline from from school to prison, from inner city schools to prison, you know, you know that. The school that I went to in high school, it was a, it was in a bad neighborhood. It was a magnet program, but in a very bad neighborhood. And we had actual police in our school where if we had a, a fight that broke out, it wasn't solved by a guidance counselor. You got arrested. And then you're 15 years old getting arrested. You have a record. And it's like, and then you, you're just shuttled into the pipeline. 
how can you get a leg up if that's where you start? Winklevoss not not going through that. Absolutely. And as human beings, we we learn through observation and and sort of uh, I'll use a vainer term here, like osmosisize. You, you sort of osmosisize the things that you're you're exposed to. And um, you know, like me speaking personally, I, I had all of the advantages uh, that you could ever ask for. I had you know parents who were together, uh, parents who were pro- professional. My my father is a doctor and. Because neither of my parents worked in business when I got to college, I didn't even know simple things like management consulting and finance are are opportunities that you per, you should pursue after college if you want to be a professional. And they're like a sort of a rubber stamp that you can then use to move into other things. And um, I, I very much got lucky in, in terms of discovering those things through friends later on. But uh, I, I think it just speaks to the fact that it's not just about uh, money. It's not just about class. It's about really seeing what viable career paths and, and opportunities are out there and seeing people who look like you being successful in, in, in some of those career paths. Yeah. I mean, in um, my assumption would be that your parents got into, are they both doctors? Uh, one is a, a consultant, but like nonprofit kind of stuff. Yeah. My, my assumption is that people get into those professions because their parents told them this is a safe career that makes a lot of money. Exactly. You know, you know, I have uh, some doctors and lawyers in my family, but they weren't approaching it from a business perspective. They were just like, well, this is a profession that's going to do good no matter what and just go to school and it will work. Now we're seeing that, especially with the economy the way it is um, and, and the fact that like college is grossly expensive in the U.S. and some of these some of these um, maybe we can call it imbalances. You know, if your only goal is to live a comfortable life, maybe going to school for 12 to 20 years because I know a lot of doctors who don't want to be doctors. They just want to be secure. Yeah. (laughs) You know, they're great doctors, but they did it because of security reasons. And there are other ways to do it. And Web3 is maybe providing some of those solutions. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, I I think another factor that might be leading to some of these disparities is that um, there's a, a sort of dip that you have to go through in terms of earning potential when you when you choose certain careers. And so, you know, let's say you you take the right paths and you go to a, a nice, expensive four year college and you come out with some student debt to get entry levels in certain uh, certain professions. And that includes things in entertainment that includes things like advertising. Uh, you have to take an entry level job at a, at a relatively low salary, uh, which is going to preclude people from from being interested in, in getting into that field, even if they're aware of it and aware that it could potentially become lucrative down uh, down the road. And so. Uh, I think that's another reason why you you rarely see uh, people of color taking those sorts of roles is, you know, unless you have wealthy parents who can finance either your education or uh, the fact that you're you're not going to make much money getting into some of these fields. It's going to be it's going to be tough. Yeah, it's interesting, too. I mean, that's why I my stance on entrepreneurship and, and starting, starting your own thing is that it's certainly it's not any uh, there's no moral or ethical high ground to being an entrepreneur. I think a lot of the culture is like. Some of the entrepreneur culture is like, this is the best way to live. I don't necessarily agree with that because, first of all, there are a lot of jobs that you can't do on your own. If you want to work for Tesla, if you want to work for Vayner, those are the companies you want to work for. So you're not going to build another one of those. You're going to build, you're going to contribute to those. Right. There's a lot of value in contributing even as an entrepreneur to those companies, as an executive to those companies. And also, it's not all it's cut out to be, um, being, being your own boss. And all that being said, the flip side of that is that you can make up some of your own rules. And a lot of these jobs do have these purposefully, uh, 
you know, suffocating entry levels, even in the professions like medicine, where you're like, well, you know, you have doctors in residency who have all the education that the other doctors have, but they're in residency for three years working, you know, 40 hours a day nonstop. And I think, how is that healthy? How You're, you're right. killing these people and they're in $200,000 in debt. Right. On top of their undergraduate debt. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so what... There's no, and I, and I think that plays into just the American system in general. Of we're not very good with, uh, with seeing long-term consequences a lot of times. But you know, you know, I think that just looking at from a technological perspective, new jobs are being created through Web three, mm-hmm. um, and even from even just from a, a financial security perspective, um, with the development of crypto as an industry, you know, we're making a new stock market. Um, one uh, one comment that I had a few a few weeks ago was that because the stock market is being rebuilt or or it's it's being built in parallel to the existing equities market. You know, you can look at the, the stock market is not going anywhere, but we're also building an entirely new exchange of companies, which are in the form of these coins and projects. And my perspective is that it's a fantastic place for you know minorities you know black indigenous people of color lgbtq plus anyone who's traditionally down you know downstream of the opportunities typically to through sheer self education learn how to slingshot yourself up because the opportunities and the the floor are much lower for you to get out on those opportunities what's your take on that uh, absolutely and and both financially in terms of uh, being able to find uh, assets like new coins that are emerging and you can buy cheap and, and if you believe in them and see, see huge gains. But also structurally, I think the idea of a DAO, a, a decentralized autonomous organization is, is fascinating. And the, you know, we're as Americans, a consumerist society and you, you, you sort of vote, um, based on what you purchase and you express yourself based on, on what you, you purchase. And, you know, when we talk about making a stand, it's boycotting things. It's, uh, it's you, you vote with your dollars. Uh, with DAOs, there's this idea that you can vote with your your crypto, but also little slivers of your time. And so you can you can you can join up with other people on the internet that think it's fascinating to buy the Constitution, for example. <laughs> they um, almost got it. They almost got it, except for uh, you know, Ken Griffin. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> shout, shouts to Ken Griffin. <laughs> Next time, guys. Next time. Um, Someone tried but, to buy a copy of the Constitution, guys. Constitution Dow, Constitutional Dow. A group of people got together to buy one of the original copies of the Constitution, and they almost got it. But I, I think it's fascinating to be able to vote with your your money and your time, and it's sort of an extension of what we see with like crowdfunding mm-hmm. uh, that you can really, really make an impact not only with your dollars but with your 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 vote and what you think the goals and aims and outcomes from these uh, from these DAOs should be. Um, I, I think it's it's a it's a fascinating shift that uh, that Web three enables. with Eric, um, you know, it's always interesting to hear the perspective of people who've been, who've played many different roles in an industry like he has. And so I hope that you're, uh, you're taking notes and you're getting a lot from this interview. And I will remind you, we're doing uh, deeper dives on these same topics on the premium side of my content. So if you go to my Substack, you'll see that there's a good amount of free content there. 
But behind the scenes, we're doing brand new free courses for premium members. We're doing uh, behind the scenes podcasts and unreleased content. Uh, we're doing uh, members only essays. We're doing merch drops. We're doing um, we're doing live Q and A sessions. We have a members only Slack. So we have a whole community building behind just this free stuff that you're hearing. And if you want to be part of that premium community, make sure you're going to my Substack. Make sure you're subscribing to become a premium member. It's like 29 bucks per month. Um, it's absolutely something that will be worth your time as we know that most of the stuff that they're putting out in the mainstream media is not worth our time. This is a curated group of smart people who have your interests and also who are pushing the boundaries of things when it comes to uh, the, the changing financial wave, when it comes to understanding personal uh, sovereignty, when it comes to psychedelics, when it comes to seeing through kind of some of the media bullshit. Um, this is a very interesting group that we're building. So check that out. Uh, newwaveentrepreneur.com has the links for everything you need to, uh, to just to join, to understand what we're doing for the year. Um, in fact, I'm working on an entire new uh, new wave entrepreneur manifesto, and that'll be on the Substack too in just a few days here. So, all right, you can tune back into the episode, and I'll talk to you after the after the uh, last segment here. Yeah, Chris Dixon had a great quote. Uh, he said, you know, web one is read only, web two, read, write, web three, read, write, own. And you think about um, how much of our life energy we give to the platforms that we spend our time on and how we don't actually own any of the things that we're accessing. So a simple example would just be you're on the Google platform. They're extracting this life energy from you and they're turning it into data. Then they use that data to monetize it through advertisements, which you either click on or don't, or they, you know, they, they charge either you or the advertiser. They're cutting it both ways. Um, but with some of this new Web3 technology, by participating in it, we also get value. So you were talking about DAOs, which is, you know, you actually having a piece of the thing that you're contributing to and a piece of the community, a pure piece of ownership. But even if you look at some of the, the like more uh, immediately applicable technologies, like you look at like the Brave browser, for instance, which is just a browser experience that you can use, surf the internet, but they have, um, they basically have pay to watch advertisements, you right. know, and they have uh, basically the a, a system where when you're served an ad, just like you are in a typical Google browser or wherever you go, when you're served an ad um, in exchange for watching that advertisement, which we've all, I mean, if I had to calculate how many minutes of ads I've watched since the internet became a thing, millions of minutes, billions of minutes, something like that. And sometimes passively without me even knowing, you know, there've been studies that have shown that like kids absorb something like, you know, 700 minutes of ads a week or something crazy like that, you know? Um, so even through pat osmosis eyes, you know, whatever. Um, but the brave browser allows you to get paid for the ad you're being served in a form of a token. This token mm -hmm. is called uh, the basic attention token, BAT. And that token is on exchanges like Coinbase. And the more you accumulate that token, you can swap that out for other tokens. You yeah. can swap that out for Ethereum. You can swap that out for money. So you're actually getting paid just to be a piece of someone else's data pool, which should have been like that all along. Uh, but we didn't have the technology and really we didn't have the awareness that this was happening. Because if you're getting something for free, you are the product. 
Exactly. That's uh, it was like one of the main tenets of Web two. If you're not paying for something, you are you're not the consumer. You're you're the product. Yeah. Um, but that idea of, di- of digital ownership, I think, is fascinating, and you can take it even further. If you look at um, you know the, the contributions that Black people have made to to society and to, to culture over the years, uh, like we're we defining, are the culture. Yeah, we're, we we're are the, the culture. We're, we're we're defining what's cool, what's interesting, and um, you know, in Web two, we were the we were we were kind of the product. We were kind of the consumers. Like if you're if you're an influencer on uh, one of these platforms in Web two, you're 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 taking a, a slice of the the profits. Of uh, you're taking a slice of the revenue that the platforms are making um, from from the the ads that they're serving uh, adjacent to your to your content. Web three, you can mint something as an NFT and own that outright, own the really own the 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 rights to what you create and 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 take the full value of that. And I, I think that's fascinating for for people uh, going you know as far back to to early days of recording music uh, where you know. Record labels are, are are taking the lion's share of the profits to to sports, where like the owners of the teams are taking the, the lion's share of the profits mm-hmm. uh, for 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 a group that contributes to culture in a, an outsized way. I think Web three and digital ownership really provides a, an interesting way for people to 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 profit off of the value that they that they uh, create for society. Can you imagine if basketball teams, football teams were DAOs? Can you imagine it would be awesome incredible and I, I know there are some some sports fans out there i mean who do you think would be a better uh manager of a, a of an organization like the uh the washington football team uh dan snyder <laughs> or or a dow like <laughs> the fact that they're still called washington football team just makes me laugh you know it's, it's, the, it's the biggest troll uh well you know and the green bay packers are actually a um they're actually like a like a, a tradable company you know there's yeah. um uh, and I don't think most NFL teams are, but they open yeah. up private shares like once every couple of years or whatever. I thought that yeah. was interesting. Um, yeah. but, the, the and, fascinating, and fascinating thing about the Packers is those ownership uh, shares don't get you any voting power. It really is just for of you course to support, not. The, support the team. Of course right? not. Yeah, it's yeah. the Patreon. It's a booster. It's a booster club, like high school booster club. Exactly. You know, <laughs> but if you're a super fan, you want to boost. Um, but you know, it's, it's interesting too. Like um, you just think about all the money that these players are making supposedly, and they are making a lot of money. But if you're making, if your contract, if, if you're making, if, if, if your contract is for 20 million and, and the organization can do that for several players, how much is the org making? Exactly. exactly. That's not, to we focus the, a lot on the players. Yeah. Not to, not to mention the appreciation of the, uh, of the, the organization itself. For, for real. And are there any uh, majority owners, black owners of any professional sports team right now? Michael Jordan, uh, Magic, yeah, Magic Johnson, I think, with the Dodgers. Okay, uh, and that ownership group, but it's a pretty short list. Jay Z owns some. He's maybe a minority owner somewhere. I think he used to be. He had like a, a, a baby percent of the Nets. I know Usher used to have a baby, baby percentage of the the Cavs. Yeah, but it's just like you know, the lion's share of these groups are going to these Robert Crafts, and you're just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's over. He's in Florida getting rubbed out. You know, soaking billions <laughs> of dollars. You know, and it's like. And, and honestly, in a way, when I the image that I see when I see Robert Kraft's or Robert Kraft esque or Al Davis or whoever you know these owners of these teams, and I see all the, the majority of the teams are all young black athletes. To me, that gives me PTSD. That looks like that looks like a plantation shot to me. That looks like a that doesn't that doesn't doesn't that it's a little reminiscent, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, with uh, the I name mean, being uh, owners. 
of a profiting of a off, you know, and then, you know, just the whole rhetoric around the Kaepernick thing, which I could give two shits about the NFL. I don't, I really don't care about if they decide to kneel or not. I just don't care. I'm kind of disinterested in it, but the whole idea of like, you should be like, you should feel grateful to be bitch. You, I'm playing for you. People are coming for Kaepernick, not yeah. the owners. They're coming for the players. You're lucky that I'm playing. Yeah. You know? Exactly. And, and you want to talk about the outsized impact of black culture. Like, let's just be honest. We're the majority of sports. Okay. At least in the U.S. We're the majority of U.S. sports. The, the, the televised ones, the popular ones, basketball, football, you know, baseball too, but they're all like from Central and South America, but they're still black. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Caribbean, you know, yeah. Cuba, okay. you know, which is funny too, because like a lot of times the, the, uh, the Hispanic black people don't associate with black. I'm like, dude, the, the slave trade just stopped at your Island. It's the same exactly. thing. Do you exactly. look at your hair? You have an Afro. It's not <laughs> hello. It's yeah. for conversation, you know, so we're the majority of the culture. Uh, you know, the most, a lot of the most famous entertainers are coming from the culture or they're imitating the culture. Um, we're one of the biggest consumers in terms of like consumers of products, goods, and services. We have an outside amount, of, an outsized amount of consumption compared to the number, the ratio of people that we have in the country. You know, so we're big spenders. So the whole idea that we won't spend is just inaccurate. Um, so things like DAOs might be quite helpful in the future to represent sure. the true, uh, the true value that we're bringing to the communities that we're already spending money on. Yeah. No, when you can when you can align your your uh, your goals and your spending and your voices and uh, and your your desired outcomes with other people, it's a it's a powerful thing. Yeah, and it's also probably a little scary for those who already have control because why would they want to give that up? Exactly. You know, the DAO is like a great idea for people who don't have any input and want input, but for the people who have the five people per organization that have input, why would they want to change? And that's maybe a reason why DAOs. Maybe you might not take off in a big way. Yeah, uh, I, I think that uh, the the fair markets eventually prove things out, and if and if something really comes along that is compelling and, and valuable, people are gonna are gonna pile into it and ape and FOMO into it. And <laughs> I'm gonna along. ape into the I'm gonna ape into the charters or something. You know, I mean, it, w- it would be incredible to be able to to form a DAO to take over a, a sports organization and run it the way the fans really want to do it. I think that would be fascinating. It would be fascinating, and it's interesting too because. From when I read these newspapers, you know, these, these like industry articles about DAOs that are, you know, working on buying these really big projects. I think I might have even seen some rumblings of DAOs trying to organize to buy sports teams. And you can even look at like the crypto.com purchase of the Staples, uh, branding, you know, on the, the former Staples Center. These things still have to get approved by the owner. So it's like, it's not like crypto.com can say, we're taking over. There's a long series of approvals that has to happen. So the people who own these assets, if the money is right, they're going to, just like Zuckerberg, they're pragmatists. They're going to go where the money is. So if a DAO is going to come with the right funds, you know, who's this? I mean, a DAO bought uh, the Wu-Tang album. Yeah. Please or (laughs) DAO. Yeah, please or DAO. You know, for Martin Scarelli, um, he's kind of a little, little, little scrub anyway, though. He's going to sell out no matter what. You know, it's another conversation. Yeah, I saw. I saw. They were doing flashbacks on CNN of his. He's like, my job is to support the shareholders, and if the shareholders want a higher prescription drug price, then that's my job. I'm like, man, you just have lost the plot, man. 
It's the best capitalism in a nutshell for you. I know. I mean, we're on everything for the benefit of shareholder return. <sighs> Late stage. Well, you know, I'll tell you, if you want to know what capitalism looks like at the very end stage, give yourself an anxiety attack with this book, Ray Dalio's okay. new book. Um, do you want to have a heart attack? Because it's really easy. You can just read 50 pages into this. Um, Shout out to Ray Dalio, uh, VaynerMedia client. Yeah, well, he's a great he's a great uh, Yoda of the space. And uh, I think I was telling you via text, I was like, within the first 50 pages, he said New World Order like at least 10 times. Yeah. And Dalio says that there are six stages of uh, like cultural cycles and that every stage represents a certain amount of like, uh, you know, cultural compliance, uh, growth, decay. And that in the fifth stage uh, where, where uh, we experience great, uh, great tension and dissension and in the sixth stage we unravel. And he says that America is in stage five right now. Okay. And that – he says that based on his, and he starts off the book by saying that, uh, he's not gonna, he's not gonna go, he's not gonna get too deep into it. But then he goes and he talks about a thousand years of history. I'm like, you just said you weren't gonna go too deep. And then he goes, he goes like back in the 1300s. I'm like, Oh God, Ray, just tell me what to do with my money. Okay. Yeah. But, um, but he, uh, he talks about the, the six stages and he says, um, that America is transitioning from stage five to stage six. And that according to his calculations, there's, he says there's, 18 indicators of civil war and that we have more than 60% of them. And so he oh. says there's a 30% chance of a hot or a cold civil war. Wow. Your thoughts? Yeah. Um, I haven't read the book yet, <laughs> but it, no, it, it, it seems like um, you know, both what's going on uh, politically and in, in terms of the internet, allowing people to to live in their own bubbles and, and consume only the information that they want, that we're becoming a, a more and more polarized uh, country. And as a result of that, you know, our, our government is functioning less and less uh, when you have things like the pandemic that uh, people decide, you know, I'm pro-vax or anti-vax and the anti-vax folks may or may not be contributing to the to the economy fully opening back up. Um, what are you what are you going to do? Uh, and so it, it, it seems like as a nation, our, our incentives or at least our, our values and beliefs, there's not good alignment and and. It's becoming a, an increasingly uh, difficult nation to, to govern and, and, and manage effectively. But don't you think that most people actually share a lot more values than they don't share? I think that's probably true, but there's no – if you think about what drives uh, media, for example, it's uh, clicks and engagement and yeah. things like fear and strong emotions. And uh, you, know, you see a headline about somebody who doesn't have the same beliefs as you, the other – and your outrage, uh, that's what that's what drives the clicks. And so um, as a nation and, and in terms of the, the, the media coverage, everything is sensationalized and, and explicitly focused on the things that uh, we don't have in common versus the things that we do. Facebook being a contributor to that, you know, Indeed. Platforms being being big Indeed. contributors. It's like on the one hand, I don't I wouldn't say I feel sorry for. Zuck or them, but I just, I, I don't think that they understood a hundred percent what they were creating when they created it. And it's become something that has, it's like, you know, if you create an organism and then it has its own life, there's only a certain amount of control that you can have unless you shut the whole thing down. Yeah. You know, and it goes back to what you said about Shkreli. I mean, everything at the end of the day for a corporation is about shareholder return. And it's almost sort of a, um, a prisoner's, prisoner's dilemma kind of thing, because you, you know that if there's value in building some sort of product, 
and hey, it may or may not be bad for society, and you decide not to build it, one of your competitors might do it, and it might put you out of business long term. And so there's this there's this question, and I think that coming back to the government aspect uh, speaks to the importance of electing officials who understand technology and the implications for society, because there shouldn't be a prisoner's limit. There should be regulations that stipulate what is good and what is bad and which boundaries you can't cross. And that's that's the point. You know, um, capitalism is a is a thriving, wonderful thing, but it's the government's function in a in a thriving uh, in a thriving capitalist society to to instill those those boundaries for the uh, for the betterment of, of society. I mean, we we've we've become so skeptical of the government. And of um, of media in general. And I think about my grandparents, you know, uh, when I was born, my great great grandmother was still alive. She was born in 1899. From the 1899 generation, you trusted whatever they told you, you know, yeah. from the, you know, from my great grandparents who my great grandmother is still alive. You know, they really took pride in being part of America It was a huge part of uh, pride coming off of World War Two. You know, it was proud to be yeah. you know and then you know then even my grandmother who was born in the 50s and who lived like a lot of her young adult childhood you know young adult period in the, in the 60s and 70s there was still this sense of american superiority and now i think that you know generation x millennial generation z i think we're you know almost too woke for our own good now where we say uh, you know i don't know i don't know if i've been lied to the whole time or if i'm just noticing it but things mm-hmm. are not how i thought they were and I'm not sure if we're going to be able to gain that trust back in the right. media or government. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, my my hopes are that um, with a new generation, um, the beliefs and values are reflected in the new wave of politicians that we elect. There you go. New wave. There you go. You we're, all, we're, all, we're all about the waves. Um, but yeah, I mean, if if this current government doesn't reflect the values and beliefs of um, of the younger electorate. Hopefully, we show up to vote and vote in some people that that do uh, represent those values and beliefs, and, and hopefully, that sort of course corrects us and, and puts us back on a, on a more um, prosperous path. See, but my opinion is that it's it's almost like you can put in like okay, for instance, I really believed in it. when Obama got elected. That was like a spiritual orgasm for me. I was so excited. <laughs> you know, I was so excited. I went to his inauguration in 2008 um, in, in Washington, D.C. It was so cold. I, uh, you know, I was going to, to school in, in Tampa at that time. I had no winter clothes. I went to D.C. in the middle of, you know, January. I didn't have any scarves, so I had a T-shirt tied around my face. And there was snot sticking the T-shirt to my face. And it was a sea of people. There were so many people in one place that you couldn't even get out of the subway because it was completely jam-packed. But it was the most people I've seen in one place uh, that were completely peaceful and loving. And when I saw uh, Michelle and Barack uh, walking down that street and they were waving, I thought, this is it. We have figured it out. America has finally figured it out. And over the course of those next few elections after that, I was like, wait a minute, it's not really changing. And then we go from Obama to Trump and I say, wait a minute. No, 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 no. We haven't, we, we, and if you really think about it, America doesn't have long enough cycles to really make a difference. If you go Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, on the surface, all completely different ideologies underneath the surface, kind of the same policies. 
The same domestic policies, the rich get richer, they continue to distribute the wealth up while the poor get poor and the middle class shrinks. Same type of global policies, we're still bombing the Middle East, we're still fucking taking over other governments, we're still, we still have embassies all over the world. It's just a different wrapper around it. And I even wonder, you know, does the voting even really matter? Because the system itself, it's like being in a car at Chuck E. Cheese's and there's only one track on there and the seat is stuck in one position. And no matter who you put in there, it's going the same place. You know, does it matter anymore? You, probably, you I guess you think it matters and maybe it does. I don't know. I think it speaks to the one commonality for all of those presidents and all those administrations, which is the role of corporate money in politics. And until you change We're not going to get it out of value. We're not going to get the money out. You know? They, I mean- one can hope. Big tech allocates money for this Absolutely. purpose. They allocate millions of dollars. You've been in, in tech. You know, they allocate money just to – and what does that look like with lobbying? Does it look like dinners or gift? What does it look like? Yeah, mainly in the form of uh, camp- campaign contributions. So it's like big tech says we're going to give you the maximum allowable percentage as a contribution and then you're going to favorably uh, legislate for us. I don't think it's explicitly stated, but I think that's uh, that's the nature of the relationship. Yeah, you know, it's just a little gift, you know. I just came and I brought some wine and crackers, and also here's a check for a billion dollars. Um, and and of course, oftentimes these politicians have sometimes competing interests from different uh, super PACs or or mm-hmm. uh, groups with money, and so they have to inevitably choose between one or the other, and. They kind of, that's why they flip flop a lot, depending on who just recently donated to them. Um, I don't actually envy that position. It's almost like, you know, being indebted to two different mafia families or something. Um, but you know, and I don't think we are going to get the money out of politics unless we turn the whole government into a DAO. Yeah. Or (laughs) unless, or unless we overthrow Citizens United, which I'm not holding my breath. (laughs) No, I won't hold my breath on that. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Well, and the same thing with the media. I mean, you know, you talk about what gets the clicks. There's a great, uh, there's a great uh, movie. Have you seen uh, Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal? Jake Gyllenhaal must have uh, must have missed that one. It's just a, it's just a movie, you know, about if it bleeds, it leads, and how mm-hmm. like the media will do anything to cover even the most gruesome stuff. And um, you know, I I tend to now think that like even though there was clear divisiveness and there is clear divisiveness in America. They just can't get enough of covering it, right. you know. They just can't get enough of it, and I really miss whether it was the truth or whether it was just my perception. Impartial journalism. I want vanilla journalism. I want mm-hmm. CNN to go there and say, "This is what happens. Here's a straight camera. This is what's going on. Here's the data that we have." And get out. Do you? Th- I don't care about what Don Lemon thinks. I really don't care. Mm-hmm. I really don't care about the opinions of it. I don't care what Chris Cuomo thinks. I don't care. And I want the unadulterated facts because you wouldn't have these competing news groups of Fox and CNN and did, did, did. I, I should just be able to, you, you know, clearly get communicated the information to make my own decision. But when you have these slanted mouthpieces, it's really hard because then it creates this unnecessary tension between people. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the issue with that is it's not going to be as profitable as a media venture if you're not selling sensationalism. And I think that. If you think about everything else that we consume, whether it's content on social media or, or YouTube, everything has, is being designed um, with the idea in effect that your your attention span is shorter and that we're jumping from thing to thing, looking for that next uh, dopamine hit. And so I, I think a lot of people have gotten sort of addicted to, to sensationally reported news and that when you read the news and, and see what's happening in the world, you want to look at it. 
through the lens of things that make you feel something, whether that's outraged or fearful or, but I think it's, I think it's an addiction that, um, that has come about through yeah, the sensationalism of, of journalism and, and media in, in general. Do you think that the evolution of the internet with web three can help to aid some of those issues? If so, how? That's interesting. Um, and that's something I've, I've thought about. Um, but I think that decentralization in general, um, lets us directly support, uh, journalism that we, that we value. Uh, and so we started to see this with things like Substack and, um, you know, high profile writers from various publications going solo, uh, and having a direct, um, a direct conversation or, or, or um, audience. And perhaps that's something that, that, um, that Web3 and, and decentralization can, can further enable so that if, if there are people that we feel are doing a great job of, of reporting the facts or, or providing thoughtful, uh, non-sensational commentary on what's going on in the world that we can, we can, uh, reward them, uh, fairly directly and not through, uh, intermediates. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I think that, um, there's definitely a, a trend of, um, reasonable voices planting their own flag rather than having to be wrapped in the manner of someone else's media. I'll tell you one person who's really surprised me who I, I just, I truly enjoy. And I think he's actually quite brilliant with his analysis is Russell Brand. Okay. I don't know if you've looked at his, um, his recent YouTube channel and his podcast. And, you know, mm-hmm. he's kind of been like a comedian and a funny guy on the, uh, 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 in the past. But I also think that comedians are some of the most astute social observers. Mm-hmm. You look at George Carlin. He yeah. might have been funny or or uh, macabre at times, but he was dead accurate with a lot. Yeah. And I almost wonder uh, what good old George would say about what everything's happening now, because he kind of died right after nine yeah. eleven, uh, and he was dead on with some of that. And I'm sure he would have great opinions. Yeah, I think to your point, the things that he said in the seventies and eighties still ring incredibly true today. And even though we've had advances in terms of things like technology, um, the same social underpinnings and dynamics that he's he's calling out on his comedy or or 100 percent true today in america well well you know what we have dave chappelle and dave chappelle's calling it out you know know? he's uh he's he's fighting a bit of a different battle well look you know i i saw i went to his show in uh, in vegas um a couple months ago and i saw him live the first thing about him is that man this dude had at least five drinks and two packs of cigarettes in a in a 90 minute set and i thought dave you're going to die. <laughs> You're going to die quickly at this rate. And he did. The fact that he could remember his, his whole set was impeccable. He didn't yeah. even say, um, one time. So it must just be is part of his thing. You, you know, I don't know. And, and in two Dave Chappelle style, he didn't have an ashtray. He just dropped his cigarette on the ground, smashed it. There's like 40, wow. 40 smashed cigarettes on the ground by the end of the show. But he's Dave Chappelle. He can do that. Um, I, you know, I, I didn't personally think that it was transphobic at all. Um, yeah. I felt that just he was giving a broader context for outrage culture and yeah. how it's really easy to create people uh, to narratives based on just reading headlines. And then they yeah. did the exact thing to him that he said was being done in the media. He's like, basically his synopsis was everyone only pays attention to the headline and doesn't listen to what I'm saying. And then yeah. they said, Dave Chappelle's transphobic. He's like, it's not yeah. what I'm saying, you know, so. But he's an example of a comedian who I think is really uh, astutely aware of what's happening. Yeah. I mean, who his, do you listen to book, for news? I'm sorry? Who do you listen to for news? Who do I listen to? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny you, you put it that way because I don't, I don't really consume 
uh, news in an, in an audio way. How do you get your, well, who do you, how do you get your updates of the world? Yeah. Uh, for sort of like world affairs, I read like <laughs> Guardian, BBC, Al Jazeera, uh, stuff like that. Al Jazeera um, solid. Yeah. In terms of other things, um, man, like all sorts of sub stacks and email newsletters and, um, uh, the team at VaynerMedia puts together a wonderful synopsis of what's happening in the, in the, uh, the tech and, and brand and media and advertising world. Uh, and apart from that, just like conversations with smart people like yourselves and other people and, and tech and subscribe to my sub stack. There's more stuff there. Exactly. Um, Vayner is interesting, uh, an interesting conversation point. Uh, what's it like to work? I mean, you're CIO there. Yeah. Yeah. Chief innovation. Officer. What, what is that? What does a CIO do? Yeah. Uh, so at a high level, we're looking to help brands innovate both how they sell and uh, what they sell. So how they sell an innovative marketing program to um, essentially educate, help brands experiment thoughtfully with and over the course of years transition to emerging marketing channels. So things like AR, VR, gaming, metaverse, NFTs, audio as a category, smart connected pack, things like that. And on the other side is an innovation studio helping uh, brands innovate on what they sell. And uh, given my tech background and, and Gary's deep, deep roots in the tech uh, community, um, we're building a network of people with with deep um, operating experience in the in the tech and startup world. So founders, um, operators, specialists uh, that we can bring in as entrepreneurs and residents and have them on a contract basis, on a consulting basis, maybe on a full time basis, um, help our clients who are a little bit more established, uh, maybe a little bit more uh, slow moving launch new ventures in a way that feels a lot more agile um, using lean startup methodology. Are we going to see Dalio in, in VR? That's what I want. I, I can't comment on that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised because he, he gets it. Um, he but gets it. Yeah. yeah. If they upload anybody's consciousness to turn it into a computer program, it should be him first. You want, you want Dalio? I'll, uh, yeah, him I'll, first. I'll try to pass that along. I don't know how much of anything else besides macroeconomics he knows, but he seems pretty smart. I wonder if his kids are annoyed. He's like, here are the principles for how I do that. Like, dad, shut up. Like, we don't care. <laughs> you know, it's like, and you can, you know, you can be the most brilliant guy and you're like, parents are just like, your kids are just like, you know? Yeah. I, I think that's, um, I think that is a difference between people who are just purely brilliant and people who are wildly successful is the context uh, or knowledge of the world to be able to apply your brilliance in a, in a way that creates value for your, for yourselves and others. And I, I think Dalio is definitely that guy. Oh yeah, I mean, he, well, the the numbers certainly support that. You yeah. know, um, yeah, it's it's interesting to you, you know to be able to. Uh, I often read his stuff, uh, and I think, wow, you know, what an amazing uh, top down perspective on so many issues. You know, he's yeah. like, well, this connects to this, this connects to that. One level up, this is what's happening. And I'm just like, dude, I'm like, I'm stuck on Instagram right now, and you're. <laughs> You know, I'm like stuck in the comment section of my Instagram and you're 17 levels above that looking at the pieces. And I guess also he's like, you know, he's like in his seventies now. The time, time allows for that and experience allows yeah. for that. And even so, it's pretty impressive. Absolutely. I mean, and, and I think that kind of knowledge and practical knowledge is timeless, just like Carlin's uh, observations about society and human behavior are timeless. It doesn't matter that, um, that, and this is, this is a big part of Gary's energy that, uh, when we think about how tech impacts society, we're not looking at, through the uh, through the lens of what does new technology enable, it's just how does it further enable um, human behavior that's existed for for generations and generations. What uh, what's it like working at Vayner? What's that experience like? It's a lot of fun. Um, it's 
you know, Gary is the single busiest person I know, uh, schedules in five minute increments. Um, what's incredible. I mean, there's so many incredibly impressive, inc- incredibly impressive things about him. Uh, but it's that given he, he schedules in five minute increments, uh, when you're in one of those five minute increments, he's just on and, uh, an incredible listener, incredibly EQ, um, incredibly astute observations and to package that with, um, someone who is a, a masterful brand build, builder, a, a masterful salesperson, um, and a masterful entrepreneur in terms of all the successes that he's, he's been behind in terms of VaynerMedia, in terms of Wine Library, in terms of V Friends, his NFT project, in terms oh, yeah. of things like Resi, oh, yeah. in terms of his investor track record. Um, just a, a, a phenomenally talented person and, uh, and a great person to work with in the, uh, the very limited time that we get to spend together. But, has he tried LSD yet? Is the question. I have no idea. I, I don't think. He, I don't. I don't think he does. I don't think he does any. People. People know. We we have this role in that's called a uh, a post content strategist, and what that means is like after we do a campaign, that person's job is to go into the the comment section and like see what the general vibes are, people are responding, and those kind of things. And we created that job because that's what Gary is like on on all of his own personal content. He's like reading things, seeing how people are reacting. And people are like, oh, like this guy must be on drugs all the time to, to act this way. And like, <laughs> definitely not the case. It's just his, you know, he's a, he's a wine guy. He loves a glass of wine. But I, I think that's just uh, natural Gary V energy. Yeah, everyone's wired differently. Um, yeah. I think one of the biggest mistakes is trying to do someone else's thing. It's trying, oh, yeah. trying to copy that. Um, 100%. And he was responsible for a lot of the entrepreneur culture. Uh, driven through social media. And I played my role in that as well, you know, especially in the early days of Instagram, really when it was getting off the ground. And, you know, but I think many people made the mistake of thinking that being an entrepreneur was having to be like Gary. And he is just his own flavor of it. You shouldn't even try to match it. It's like, um, it doesn't mean that you can't be equally as impactful in your own way. But, you know, you can look at someone like, uh, like my friend Tom, who is yeah. also equally as successful. But he's not the same flavor as Gary. They're both hyper productive. I say they're both hyper, hyper mode, you know, but they're different people. And you look at someone, you know, adjacent to them, you know, and they're, you know, didn't Ty Lopez buy Radio Shack, you know, and it's like, you know, and he's not, he's not the same as Gary or Tom, you know, and then you have, you know, so different energies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we all have uh, different strengths and weaknesses, different preferences, different styles, and uh, you absolutely can't. Uh, be the best version of yourself if you're uh, if you're trying to imitate somebody else. You got to lean into your own. Strengths. Yeah, it's like when it's like when Brad Pitt made Fight Club and everyone's like, "I want to look like Brad Pitt," and it's like yeah. you don't you don't have the same structure. You can get yeah. as lean as him, but you're not going to have the same shape. Yeah. You know, you know, got to be and you got to be you. And, and so, and I think that's important. I mean, for me, my my um, I don't know. I've just learned over the years that I'm probably not going to be a billionaire because I see at that level what that lifestyle is like, and it doesn't appeal to me. And it there's a certain part of me that died when I realized that I wasn't going to be that because I'm like, yeah. oh, to get there, you have to live like this. And I don't like that. Yeah. You know, and I've been comfortable with that for a long period of time. That's probably yeah. one of the reasons why I've never tried to be an entrepreneur is I enjoy the process of learning and and essentially scaling things that already exist rather yeah. than starting from zero. And, you know, you mentioned you know, a lot of people think that they want to be entrepreneurs and, and see it hyped in culture. But I, what I think a lot of people don't realize is, number one, what a lonely journey it can be at times. Very number lonely, two, yeah. the amount of, of responsibility that you bear as the as the founder, uh, you know, as a steward of investors capital, as an employer of many people, 
And, um, and that can be tougher than a lot of people think. Um, yeah. And then, you know, yeah, I was gonna say on, on that note, I've, I've got to run, but good. It's, uh, good. It's been, uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Good run. And, and, uh, and guys take this to heart, you know, learning to develop your own strategy for life and your own strategy for, for how you want to create what for you is success is I think more important than trying to copy someone else's style. Um, Eric, thank you for the show. enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed creating that for you. And, you know, it's always fun for me to um, get to be, I, I get to play, you know, both sides here. I get to learn along with you and I get to narrate the experience for you. And so it's an honor for me to be here uh, with you sharing this, this, uh, you know, these wonderful interviews. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Eric. Um, you can catch up with him. We'll put all of his contact information and his um, his info in the show notes here. And yeah, that's all I got for you today, guys. We have another great interview coming for you after this. And I also have a couple one-on-one uh, -on -one podcasts or, or solo podcasts planned for you over the next week and a half or so. And we are jumping right into 2022 with our guns blazing. Make sure if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, if you're just listening casually, subscribe on the platform of your choice, whether you're listening on uh, Spotify or iTunes or um, or Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening, go ahead and subscribe there. Um, and go ahead and if you haven't subscribed on Substack, do that as well. NewWaveEntrepreneur.com is my simple one-page website where I put everything pertaining to the movement here. And we drop free stuff all the time. In fact, if you're a uh, subscriber of my Substack, or even doing a crypto giveaway right now, which I'm dropping uh, on January 1st. So, you know, I'm trying to make it exciting to be part of something rather than just, you know, spitting information at you, building something together. Um, and so hope that hopefully you're enjoying this. I certainly am. Uh, hit you on the flip side. Much love. The water is warm. The tide is rising. It's time to surf. Bad news.